Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Raff. I'm Monish Raff. This is a program that we do every 30 days. We try and cover in about 30 minutes a new or developmental element in the field of occupational safety and health law. We've been doing this for almost eight years, so we've we've done about 85 episodes, and uh, and today's topic I think is an excellent topic and an important topic, and for what's historic, uh, it is the third time in a row we're covering the same topic for three months in a row, and, and uh, that, that's understandable. We're living in historic times. The topic today is an update on the workplace law implications of the coronavirus. Uh, I'm joined today by my colleague. As I said, I'm Manish Rath. I'm a partner here at Keller & Heckman in Washington, D.C., and a part of our OSHA practice. And I'm joined today by one of the members of our occupational safety and health law practice, Taylor Johnson. Taylor, welcome, and thank you for joining us here at the OSHA 3030. Thanks, Manish. Happy to be here. Uh, Taylor, Taylor's first time today at the OSHA 3030, and, and we're grateful that you've joined us. Um, uh, Taylor, as you know, we have an important topic today, and so why don't we, with that, just get right into it. I think the first thing to say, however, is that, that we, as I said before, we've covered this three times in a row, and the information keeps evolving, and so too do the guidances from the various agencies and at the state level as well. And so so this topic and everything we discussed today, the materials that you see on the slides if you're coming in by webinar, are are particular to this point in time, May 20th, uh, 2020, and, and may eventually become outdated. It's important that you work with your OSHA counsel to stay up to date as agency policies continue to evolve to match the changing circumstances that we're all uh, undergoing. Uh, those two other programs that we did in April as well uh, in March, uh, which by now much of which has, has evolved and maybe even be outdated, uh, along with the other 85 or more previous episodes of the uh, OSHA 3030 can be found on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. Uh, it, now, the only thing that we've ever asked, uh, this program has been complimentary for eight years, and the only thing we've ever asked of our members of the OSHA 3030 community is that when you get an invitation, please forward it on to three other people who are in-house counsel or other professionals, safety and health professionals, human resources professionals, or others at your organization or at other organizations that are responsible for effectuating an, a safety and health plan at your work site. Uh, so with that said, Taylor, why don't we get into what we're going to talk about today? I think the first thing we have to talk about, Taylor, is uh, covering recent updates at the Occupational Safety and Health Administration as well as at the Department of Labor and their, their enforcement guidelines to their various field offices. Uh, within the past few weeks, the EEOC has revised its guidance. There have been changes in several of the guidances that we've talked about in the prior two OSHA 3030s from the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, and those are perhaps as critical as anything else that you must know or take away from today's program. Uh, Congress has been actively making proposals about uh, what to include in the next relief bills, some of which directly implicate occupational safety and health. Uh, there have been state updates. And then finally, as we always end our program here at the OSHA 3030, we will finish up with practical takeaway items for you 
uh, in a slide titled What Employers Should Do in Light of These Developments. So with that said, let's start at the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Uh, Taylor, there have been a number of uh, brief guidances, some of them just one-page guidances, uh, that are industry-specific. That's right, Manish. You know, as you can see from the slide, OSHA has issued a variety of industry-specific guidances related to COVID-19. In fact, seven have been issued in just the last month, so there's really been a flurry of these. And the guidance has been issued in the form of, like you mentioned, one-page OSHA alerts, um, and these are accessible on the agency's website. And in addition to the industry-specific guidance that these alerts provide, uh, it's important to note that all of them do stress the need to, one, work in unison with state and local public health officials, and two, incorporate CDC guidance uh, whenever possible. So, yes, as you mentioned, some of them have come out, most of them have come out just in the past week or two weeks. Uh, let's talk about some of those. Uh, why don't we start with construction? Sure, absolutely. Um, so on April 21st, OSHA issued its COVID-19 guidance for the construction workforce. And um, the guidance states um, that, first and foremost, um, PPE that's being worn in response to COVID-19 is not a replacement uh, for the normal PPE that the job site would require under OSHA standards. Uh, additionally, employees should avoid sharing tools if possible. And if not possible, the guidance states that employers should provide workers with alcohol-based wipes to clean tools before and after use. Also, employers should make sure that they are cleaning and disinfecting frequently touched items. Uh, this would include door poles and toilet seats. And finally, all in-person meetings, um, such as toolbox talks and safety meetings, should be kept as short as possible while adhering to social distancing guidelines. It's an interesting uh, guidance. I, I must say it's hard to read this very brief one-pager with maybe 10 bullets uh, and and come away. It's very difficult to come away with the impression that this is a thorough or thoughtful um, actual compliance guidance or or that it has much that's practical that's that's um, helpful to employers in the construction industry. Some of the bullet items are encourage respiratory etiquette, including covering coughs and sneezes, and promote personal hygiene, uh, including hand washing or uh, alcohol-based hand rubs. This, I'd say, for most construction firms is very obvious, very intuitive, and I, I can't help but think to most construction firms decidedly unhelpful. Uh, not the kind of, but that's not to say that construction firms aren't seeking help. It's just to say that they're not finding it from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration in the form of this guidance. Uh, they wrote another guidance for meatpacking. Meatpacking is an interesting industry. Anyone who's watched the news knows that this is maybe number one or number two in terms of workplaces that have really suffered from a high number of cases and unfortunately high number of fatalities uh, related to coronavirus at the workplace. That's right, Manish. And, and this guidance for meatpacking and processing industries was, was issued on April 26th. Uh, it stresses the need for, employee, for employers to modify the employee alignment um, on meatpacking and, and processing workstations. And on their website, OSHA has provided visual aids uh, for how employers can use partitions to make sure that workers are six feet apart in all directions. Uh, additionally, employers should wipe down tools 
and other equipment at least as often as workers change workstations and consider consulting with a ventilation engineer to ensure adequate ventilation in work areas. Yeah, again, unhelpful, but it's true that some some tools are shared tools. This is also true for light equipment and heavy equipment. Uh, and as shifts change, the, the uh, tools or equipment gets handed over from one shift to another. But I think one of the more complicated questions uh, for, for, say, for example, let's go back to construction, is that there are materials that are getting handed from one worker to another, like, for example, conduits or uh, cabling or pipes. Those materials get handed from one, material, one worker to another, and this idea that you, you would wipe down a tool before handing it from one worker to another may be practical, but it's impractical when dealing with materials because that is a constant flow of new materials that gets handed down the line. Uh, so, so employers have to consider other practical solutions, for example, gloves and frequent glove changing, tr changing and training on proper removal of, and disposal of gloves uh, as part of their coronavirus response plan. So the Occupational Safety and Health Administration had issued uh, only a couple of weeks ago a, a new enforcement guidance to its uh, relative uh, area uh, offices. It was a specifically a memorandum from the Deputy Assistant Secretary to regional administrators and as well to, to the state plan OSHAs. And it essentially said that uh, there are specific approved methods for decontamination for face piece respirators, and that there are other methods that, because they've been used in the past, OSHA wanted to specifically disclaim that they're not currently approved by OSHA unless the employer can provide objective data demonstrating the safety and effectiveness of those methods. Those methods include autoclaving, uh, my, uh, microwave irradiation, the use of chlorine bleach, or wiping down with dis disinfectant or soap and water are not currently approved by the Department of Labor and can only be used if the employer can show objective data. Uh, however, the, the Department of Labor has approved the use of vaporous hydrogen peroxide and uh, UV germicidal irradiation as well as moist heat. But many of you may be asking, well, why are they approving hydrogen peroxide but not ethylene oxide? Uh, because they both seem to have a similar methodology. And I can only speculate that one of the differences is the vaporous hydrogen peroxide is not a gas. By being vaporous, it, it does tend to condense on settled surfaces and may, because of that, have a more reliable contact time to, to kill virus material, whereas ethylene oxide remains in gaseous form. And um, it's possible that, that the studies that uh, NIOSH has looked at have not produced objective data that shows the efficacy for the use of EO. I found that to be interesting. I was personally surprised, but but not having had time yet to look at the studies that NIOSH has looked at, I, I, I want to make sure that I report that to you from an enforcement perspective. OSHA is, is now taking the position that hydrogen peroxide is approved, ethylene oxide isn't. Uh, with that said, they've issued a new uh, poster on how to properly wear and remove a respirator. Unfortunately, the removal of the respirator is a opportunity for contact. Okay, moving along, the uh, Department of Labor issued a leave enforcement, uh, paid leave enforcement, um, essentially the end of their, their non-enforcement 
uh, hiatus, uh, which ended on April 20th. And so they, they made an announcement that said that the Department of Labor will now enforce the paid leave requirements under the Families First Act or the Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act. And uh, there have been a number of instances where they have actually issued uh, penalties. There's one electrical contractor in Arizona, a tire company in Anaheim, California, a trucking company. These are all small back wage uh, payment orders. Uh, nevertheless, it does show that the Department of Labor is open for business when it comes to enforcement on the Families First Act. I'll just give you one example of what kind of violation was alleged by the Department of Labor. Uh, in the case of discount tire centers, an employee was advised by a physician that that employee should self-quarantine because the employee's family member had tested positive for coronavirus. So the employee stayed home and reported into the employer that they've been ordered by the doctor to stay home and requested paid leave uh, under the Emergency Paid Leave Act. The employer said we, we need a doctor's note, uh, which contains you know confirmation that that the family member had uh, had tested positive, and the Department of Labor said that that requirement that the employee submit proof was itself a violation, and issued a, a penalty of about two thousand uh, dollars. Maybe one of the most important developments to come out in the past few weeks since we all last convened was that the EEOC revised its March. Uh, 21st guidance on uh, on it, it's on employers' abilities to engage in questioning uh, of employer of employees relating to symptoms, etc., uh, with respect to coronavirus. That I, I believe is one of the questions that's come up quite a bit with clients that we've spoken with. Um, the starting with the CDC, which has identified symptoms, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, for coronavirus. Employers, as part of their coronavirus control plans, have been asking employees uh, to take temperature readings as well as to report on the presence of any symptoms related to coronavirus uh, before they enter the premises at the start of their shift. And so a lot of uh, employers are asking the question, well, are these permissible inquiries under the uh, EEO laws, specifically the Americans with Disabilities Act, and the EEOC, in its March 21 guidance, made it clear that these are permissible medical questions. They've since revised the guidance to make clear that that medical questions as well as uh, temperature checks are permissible under the Americans with Disabilities Act in the context of the coronavirus pandemic specifically, and that employers can administer COVID-19 tests before an employee enters the workplace. The EEOC is clear that you still should follow guidelines and suggestions made by the CDC or by your state public health authority. But those CDC guidelines also suggest that employers check for symptoms at the start of a shift before employees are permitted to enter the workplace as a bona fide screening tool for controlling the spread of uh, coronavirus at the workplace. Uh, so, so I, I hope that employers were concerned about the intrusiveness, uh, are, are satisfied by the issuance of this revised EEOC guideline, uh, but I also would note that it dispels the idea that, at least with respect to the Americans with Disabilities Act, that the employee, and you may hear this from your employees, 
that the employee has any privacy rights to to demur on sub submitting the questionnaire responses or taking their temperature. And I think you will get some employees who refuse to take those. And the question would now be, well, then can the employer require it or suspend without pay the employee until they're willing to take submit to these questions, these symptom-based questions or a temperature to check? And the answer is yes. There's nothing under the Americans with Disabilities Act that grants an employee an absolute right to refuse to cooperate with this really essential element of a workplace coronavirus control plan. Okay, so I think that was helpful on the part of, of the agency to, to clarify its, its earlier guidance. So as I said, the CDC has revised, I'd say again, their statement of symptoms with respect to coronavirus. They had originally identified a list of symptoms that they believed to be associated with coronavirus. Then they revised it to say that uh, it was essentially a, a bifurcation of symptoms where a, the presence of a cough or shortness of breath or difficulty breathing, either one of those by themselves would be a symptom that would permit the presumption of coronavirus sufficient to direct a patient to, to 14 days of isolation. Uh, or or the, the seven, which is now 10 days of uh, isolation until after 10 days from the onset of the first symptom, as well as reduction of fever without fever reducing medicine. And then there was a list of seven more symptoms where any two of them would qualify to meet that threshold. Now, however, the CDC has revised again their list of symptoms, and that was only May 13th, only a few days ago. And they eliminated, eliminated this bifurcation where it was one, any one of those two symptoms, cough or shortness of breath, or any two of the others. And now they've just put out a shortened list of seven symptoms, and they said people with any of those seven symptoms may have a positive case of coronavirus based on symptoms. And they include a cough or shortness of breath or difficulty breathing, fever, chills, muscle pain. This is all over body aches. We're talking about not specific muscles in muscle pain. A sore throat or a sudden new loss of taste or smell. Um, what's eliminated is headaches. And they also added in a follow-up note that there are lesser uh, com less common symptoms as well that are being reported, some gastrointestinal symptoms like nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea. Uh, in addition, the CDC revised its gui guidance on home isolation periods, and that was May 3 that that came out. Uh, and it's, it's a bifurcated uh, guidance. If there is a person who has COVID-19 and is under isolation, there are two methods for determining when to discontinue home isolation. If somebody has symptoms uh, and they have COVID-19, then, then you can either use the symptom-based strategy or the test-based strategy. We've discussed that with the one distinction being uh, that it's not only three days since resolution of fever uh, without fever-reducing medicines and the improvement in respiratory symptoms like cough or shortness of breath, that's new and at least 10 days have transpired since the onset of any symptoms. Or you can use a test-based strategy, which requires two negative tests in a 24-hour period or more. Uh, then there is a 
I, the in the same guidance, there is a uh, guidance for when to end home isolation for people who have been asymptomatic but nevertheless tested positive and are currently under isolation because they're of their positive test. Again, the time-based strategy, which is only a 10-day limit since the onset of symptoms, and if they develop symptoms during that period, then you then you refer to the test-based strategy. Uh, or you can use the test-based strategy, which is a negative test two times in a row, more than 24 hours apart. So that that's the update to the guidance on when to end home isolation. And I think it's uh, incredibly important to understand that there are two ways to do this, both of which have a, a time or test-based strategy, a symptoms-based strategy, or a test-based strategy. One is for those who are COVID-19 and under isolation, and one is for those who have tested positive but do not have any symptoms. Okay. Moving along, the CDC has also revised its return to work criteria for employers, and that came out on May 6th. I think the big change there is this is a guidance for employers for when to permit an employee to return to work. Presumptively, this would include critical infrastructure businesses. And it basically, in a nutshell, it urges employers that when the workplace returns to work, there are certain steps at the workplace generally, not with specific employees, that an employer should undertake, including daily health checks, which we just discussed. This is the questionnaire about symptoms, temperature check, et cetera. Uh, conducting a hazard assessment of the workplace, which means going through the workplace, determining where material, materials or contact surfaces are shared, and uh, what disinfection procedures should be employed. Uh, encouraging employees, and here the CDC is, I think, uh, quite soft. It says encouraging employees to wear cloth face coverings in the workplace if appropriate. In the essential, uh, in the essential critical infrastructure guidance, it had said that it should uh, mandate face cloths where six feet of distancing is impractical or impossible. And so, so you need to consider whether or not you view this language of encouraging face cloth, cloth face coverings as merely a floor above which you're entitled to require more, uh, like mandating cloth face coverings. And then finally, implementing policies and procedures for social distancing. And uh, then there's engineering controls, like improving the building ventilation system. Uh, in addition, they've updated their cleaning and disinfection guideline and implemented uh, specific guidance on best practices for for social distancing. If you have any specific questions about any of these, please contact us. We're happy to go into further detail than is practical in a 30-minute OSHA 3030 format. Uh, we do note that in the critical infrastructure guidance, the CDC has noted that home isolation is still the preferred option, even when the workplace may be a critical infrastructure workplace. They've simply said in those cases, engage in cross-training and take other measures to make sure that your workforce is able to continue. But, but that, that employee who is symptomatic or confirmed may need to be isolated. Uh, 
there is other language in the critical infrastructure guidance that suggests that an employee who uh, has had a confirmed case would need to wear a face mask for an extended period of time and practice social distancing whenever possible. Uh, okay, so so the other issues that it discusses in its critical infrastructure guidance go to the same questions of minimizing the number of workers, distancing them, uh, anticipating and monitoring absences, and performing that same pre-screening, which pops up in, in the other guidances. Taylor, the CDC has also jointly issued a guidance about specifically cleaning and disinfecting in public spaces, workplaces, and uh, businesses and schools and homes. That's right, Manish. Uh, on April 29th, uh, CDC and EPA issued this joint guidance um, for cleaning and disinfecting. And uh, it's important to note here, um, in addition to the steps, um, you know, first cleaning the surface or object with soap and water, and then disinfecting using the, the EPA-approved disinfectant, uh, which you could find on List N, which is available on EPA's website, uh, we thought it was important to highlight that the CDC is now recommending 70% alcohol solutions to disinfect surfaces. 60% um, is the threshold for disinfecting your hands, but it's 70% for surfaces. So just to avo avoid any confusion on that, um, it's still 60% for hands, but now 70% uh, alcohol solutions to disinfect surfaces. So, the, yeah, this is important. It's, uh, it's either 60% when you're talking about ethanol or 70% price for hand uh, sanitizers, but for disinfecting surfaces, it's a 70% alcohol solution. Uh, I, I point that out, even though you just said it, because it, it can get confusing. Uh, so let's talk about uh, what's happened in the past, just in the past week. To begin with, OSHA, and this is one of the questions that's come up uh, by one of our attendees. To begin with, OSHA had just yesterday issued uh, to its uh, regional administrators and its state plans a guidance on ref revised enforcement uh, on OSHA's revised enforcement plan. And essentially, uh, OSHA has told its area offices and the states that uh, OSHA will commence enforcement on failures to engage in record keeping, and it will engage in enforcement that goes beyond merely the questioning from the desk. It will now consider sites that it might make vis visits to. The the record keeping guidance that came out yesterday deals with uh, this uh, really fundamental question for record keeping, which deals with work relatedness. And OSHA essentially said, we understand that there are some cases where there's widespread community uh, spread of coronavirus that it might be very difficult to to make a work relatedness determination. And in those cases, uh, OSHA will make a good faith determination and may not issue a citation. However, there has to be reasonableness as to the investigation that the employer undertook to make a determination of work-relatedness. And if there was uh, a reasonable investigation and there's evidence that was available to the employer, whether he uncovered, whether the employer uncovered the information or not, uh, then there might be a citation that's issued based on the evidence available as to work-relatedness, uh, work-related exposures for uh, for the possible contraction of coronavirus. Uh, they also, interestingly, make a likelihood determination. So in cases where a coronavirus case is likely to develop because workers are closely packed together and there's simply a lack of alternative explanations, OSHA might consider 
that's a, an instance where it would expect an employer to make a work-related determination and thus make an entry. I've been asked a few times now whether or not uh, a particular case was work-related. So if any of you have any specific questions, please feel free to reach out. We'll, we'll do what we can to, to help walk you through a work-relatedness or a recordability determination. Another question we've been getting during this past 20-odd uh, minutes by our attendees is, well, can you update what's going on with Congress? There have been proposals in each of the relief acts to direct OSHA to issue an emergency standard mandating that employers take specific coronavirus-related control measures. And in every instance thus far, the House proponents have not succeeded at the very latest in getting it passed at the Senate level. And the next relief bill that's being discussed, it also proposes that OSHA issue an emergency standard. This may actually be uh, mitigated by a suit that was just brought by the AFL-CIO. And that suit was filed, I think, yesterday uh, in federal court in the U.S. Court of Appeals in the, in the appellate circuit for the District of Columbia. And essentially, the AFL-CIO said, we asked the agency, OSHA, to issue a coronavirus emergency temporary standard. And by not responding to us, they effectively have denied our request. And that gives us an actionable claim. And they allege that OSHA has already received 4,000 complaints. They've dismissed almost 3,000 of them. AFL-CIO is not aware of any actual general duty clause Citation that's been issued for failure to take control measures, adequate control measures uh, relating to coronavirus, and that they want a court-ordered uh, mandate that the agency implement an emergency temporary standard. The emergency temporary standard is a very uh, arcane uh, element of the act that was promulgated by Congress in 1970. It was used to great effect in the first few years, and um, the FLCIO says it should be revived for the purpose of an emergency such as the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, OSHA's response was, well, we have the general duty clause and we have CDC guidances and we've been issuing a great number of guidances and that's more effective because they can be issued much more quickly than would an emergency temporary standard. Uh, the FLCIO believes that that has been an inadequate uh, response compared to the specifics that you might find under an emergency temporary standard, and that that's the big difference between a temporary standard, emergency temporary standard, and a guidance is the level of specificity of the requirements. Uh, so, so that's where we are with the congressional um, uh, impetus as well as the AFL-CIO suit. Uh, you should know that the states are continuing to progress with their own agenda, both at the Departments of Public Health and as well as the, the governor's offices. Uh, and I'll just give you one example. California issued um, an executive order stating that coronavirus-related illnesses are presumed to be work-related and arise out of and in the course of employment if there was a positive diagnosis or a positive test uh, within 14 days of having gone to work at all uh, at any time after March 19th. Uh, that one governor's order is merely an example. I think a relatively uh, extreme example, but the other states have done some, uh, taken some measures that that are at least analogous. 
and or comparable and and essentially what they're doing in doing so is establishing a base of work relatedness so their employees can appeal for paid sick benefits or access to the workers comp system so we've run out of time uh let's conclude with a practical list of takeaway items for what employers should do in light of these developments uh, first of all, it, I think it's really critical for employers to identify the tasks when they're within their operations that are a, a critical infrastructure tasks or essential to coronavirus relief efforts and to cross-train employees in those areas so that every employee arguably or as many employees as possible can arguably uh, perform those tasks. That will keep a large fraction of your business justified in continuing to run. Uh, but, of course, for those critical infrastructure workers, it's important to implement the CDC um, recommended guidances for critical infrastructure workers to make sure that they're safe. And to ensure, second, where sick leave policies are concerned, to make sure that if you are covered under the Families First Act, to ensure that your sick leave policies are flexible and consistent with federal state guidelines and that paid leave is given where the employer is covered and the bases for the leave are covered under the Families First Act. Uh, it's important if you're a multi-state employer to keep an eye on all the state's public health departments and governor's uh, offices mandates or, or guidances for stay-at-home orders or critical infrastructure designations. And finally, one of the stories that's becoming clear, uh, very clear, is that all of the agencies I've described, plus some of the states, expect at a minimum a written coronavirus control plan that covers the kinds of precautions, distancing, disinfection, when to order people to go home, what kinds of um, methods you're using to detect coronavirus, such as symptom check, temperature check, et cetera, when, when you'd order people to go home, for how long you'd be uh, ordering them to go home, which employees are non-essential, where you've got flexibility for telework, or remote work, uh, or, or uh, what your distancing practices are, what your disinfection practices are, and hand washing measures, and uh, and policies for sharing equipment and materials, et cetera. All of those should be in a written coronavirus response plan or control plan in order to manage your ability to justify to courts and to the compliance agencies what steps you've been taking and the good faith efforts you've been engaged in to try and make sure that the workplace is safe and helpful uh, during the pandemic. Okay, that's it for today's OSHA 3030. Uh, you can catch more information at, on our Twitter account, at Rathmonish. This program will be rebroadcast as a podcast. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming app, such as SoundCloud or uh, Apple Podcast, and we're now on Spotify. Uh, all of our programs are recorded on our uh, website, uh, khlaw dot com slash OSHA 3030. And uh, all of us have LinkedIn pages. My colleagues, David Sarvati, Larry Halperin, myself, as well as Javane Nakumaran, John Gustafson, Gustafson, who you, whom you've heard from before, and Taylor Johnson, who's making his debut today on the OSHA 3030. Uh, our next program will be at 1 p.m. on Wednesday, June 17th, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. And you can find out more information at khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. When you Get the next email inviting you to the OSHA 3030. Please remember, if you can, forward that email to three other colleagues at your organization or at other organizations. Uh, we also have sister programs, the Tosca 3030, Reach 3030, and Pfeffer 3030, all of which are on our website. 
Uh, I'm grateful to all of you for participating today. And Taylor Johnson, I'm grateful to you for joining us on the OSHA 3030. On behalf of Taylor Johnson, Keller and Heckman, and all of us, uh, we wish you a safe and helpful month. And until we see you again, stay safe.